I used to teach high school science with a guy named Stuart. Stuart won a bronze medal in the shot put at the 1986 Edinburgh Commonwealth Games. He's a man mountain. A picture Stu, but another head taller than Stu and even wider. He's still competing in Masters athletic events. Uh, Before he arrived at school, another teacher and I had been lifting weights in the school gym for a while. We were pretty regular, but we weren't really improving. Stu joined us before long, and he was the weights expert, the gym junkie. And he said we weren't improving because we'd been doing the same routine uh, for too long and our muscles were used to the workload. He said if we wanted to improve, we needed to fatigue our muscles, to work to the limit of what they were capable of. And so he introduced us to something called pyramid sets. Uh, And the idea was you'd start with something light on the bar and do as many as you could. You might do 15. Then the two helpers would add a weight to either side. And without getting up, you'd do as many as you could. Again, and this time you might do eight. And then they'd add some more, and you might do three, and then they'd add some more, and you might do one. To get the idea of pyramid. Uh, and you'd strain to do every one, and each time you'd work your muscles to the limits, to what you thought was the end. But that was only half. Then you'd actually go the other way. You would start taking the weights off again, and once again go to the limits. And you might be able to do three and then five and the hilarious end to a pyramid set was when you only had the bar and your arms were shaking like this and you were just trying to lift the bare bar. Uh, it was hilarious. Uh, but the idea was to, to go to the limit to fatigue your muscles to the end. That's the way to make progress. And we only had to look to Stuart for inspiration. Uh, he had arms the size of my legs, legs the size of my body, a chest the size of a large gum tree and we figured if it worked for him then it would work for us, it would be worth following his example. And uh, these verses from Paul to the Philippians have got a similar idea, the same sort of encouragement, this time to do with the Christian life. He says, work it out right to the end. Uh, Chapter 2 verse 12, in the middle of the chapter there, Paul encourages them, therefore my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only my absence, but now much, uh, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've started the journey. God saved you. He's, he's given you a new life with a new purpose and direction and future. But don't stop there. Don't half do something. Work it out to the end. Don't give up. The Christian life isn't about one decision that you make, it's not walking down the front at some sort of crusade and then everything continues the way it's always done. It's not about putting your feet up now that you've got eternity worked out, it's about continuing on, pressing on from that first decision and making a second and a third and a fourth, uh, to continue working out what it means to be saved. Are you ever tempted to think that the Christian life is about putting your feet up now that you've made that decision and eternity's safe. Don't think like that. If that's you, Paul's got a message. If the gospel's true, then your world should have been flipped on its head. If the gospel's true, then it's got consequences for how you live. And you need to be working those consequences out. 
And when it comes to the Philippians, Paul's emphasis is on their unity or their lack of it, as seems to be the case in Philippi. The consequences of being saved will be seen in the day-to-day decisions of how they get on. It's a theme all the way through these verses. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ. What does it mean to respond worthy of the Gospel? He goes on and says, Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the Gospel. Worthy behaviour will be standing firm, united with each other. When things are tough, your strength to continue is going to be seen, primarily, humanly speaking, from how strong your relationships are. Relationships with your Christian brothers and sisters. Strength to persevere comes from unity, says Paul. We're all different, but unity is working for a common purpose, moving in a common direction, with common priorities, with a common Lord, working together, not against each other. Imagine a long line of foot soldiers preparing for battle, the enemies on the other ridge, and there they are standing shoulder to shoulder, holding a shield and a spear, all pointed in the direction of the enemy. The strength of that line depends on each individual keeping formation, keeping their shield and their spear up. One soldier on his own won't stop anything, but together, a single line, all focused in the one direction, is difficult to break through. That's what the church should be like. That's the picture Paul is painting for us here. Let me ask you, is this group of believers a source of strength for you? Do they enable you to keep persevering strong to the end? Or let me turn it around. Are you that source of strength for someone else here, for other people? How are you contributing to their ability to enable you to persevere? But interestingly, I don't think Paul's saying that we actually need to work up some sort of unity among ourselves. His point from the start of the chapter is that we are, if we're Christian, already united with each other. That's what he's saying from the start of chapter 2. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship uh, with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Uh, Firstly, uh, if you're a Christian, you're already united. Uh, And he gives us four different reasons. Uh, Firstly, we're all united with Christ. Uh, Each of us individually has been joined to God through faith, uh, joined by God to Christ through faith. Secondly, we all know the comfort of God's love. He's our Father, we're his children. Thirdly, we all experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I think that's three different ways of saying basically the same thing. Uh, We belong to each other, we're joined to each other because God himself, the Trinitarian God, has joined himself to us or joined us to himself. 
a little bit like the benediction in, at the end of 2 Corinthians when Paul says, may the, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We are united because if we're in Christ, then we're in each other. Paul's fourth reason is a little harder to work out. He says, if any tenderness and compassion. Now, he could be talking about what we receive from God. We receive his tenderness and compassion. He could be talking about what we feel for each other. We feel compassionate towards each other. But I think he's actually talking about the Philippians' relationship with Paul himself. Uh, He's saying, you all know the compassion and the tenderness I have for you. You all know how uh, you feel compassionate and tender towards me. Well, make my joy complete and and go on and do the things that I'm asking. So you have those things. So they're the four areas in which the Philippians are already united Paul goes on, he says, that's the unity that you have, that's, it's there in status, but you need to make it a reality. Uh, you've got a unity in identity, but you need to express it. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, imagine we have up the front here Linda, Nora and Leela, three wonderful members of our church. They actually have something in common but you couldn't tell by looking at them. They're united in status and identity, but you'd never tell until they pull out their ukuleles and start playing together. Now, the the unity is there in status, but it's not until it's expressed that you see them united, and hopefully if they're in tune and playing the same piece, then they will be united. And so Paul's point is a similar one. The unity we have as Christians is there already. We are united, but we need to work out the consequences of that. We need to express it. We need to give it hands and feet. And so he says in verse 2, you are united, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. That's the hands and feet of the identity they have, the status that, they, that we have of being united. So there's four areas in which we can see it practically. Just like there's four foundations for the unity in verse 1, we now have four expressions of unity in verse 2. Same mind, same love, same spirit, same purpose. Now, same mind... Uh, That doesn't mean we should all be clones, that we all have to think identically, that we all have to think, have the same opinion about every single thing. That's a cult, not a church. Uh, It's more about setting our minds on the same priorities, I think. It's about thinking about the world in the same way. Not having identical opinions about everything, Uh, Maybe a better translation would be where to have the same mindset might be better translated. Then we've got that phrase, the same love. I think what he's getting at there is that we should give each person the same level of concern as every other person and uh, as we give ourselves. 
We should love each other as we love ourselves and we should love people equally. There shouldn't be levels of attention or concern. There shouldn't be VIPs. We should have the same love. Then there's same spirit. Uh, It's literally we should be together in soul. Uh, Soul in, in Greek is about your whole being. So we should be pointed in our whole lives in the same direction as each other. And I think that's the idea of that fourth phrase, the same purpose. We should have the same agenda, the same priorities. Uh, We shouldn't be divisive. We should be building rather than breaking bridges with each other. So there's some practical descriptions of what unity expresses or how unity expresses itself. But let me ask the question, is that realistic? Uh, Look around you, we are a very different group of people, not just from those outside but from each other. Uh, We are quite diverse. Surely it's impossible for us to have the same mind, one love, one spirit, one purpose, isn't it? And even if you were able to think and act in a certain way, there's still everybody else, Isn't it a huge task that a a whole church could be working towards that description of one mind, love, spirit and purpose? Well, let me ask you another question. There's a a well-known business management and time management question. How do you eat an elephant? Does anyone know the answer? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. One bite at a time. And so I think that's what Paul's doing here. He says... Here's this big picture of unity. How do you go about achieving it? Well, it's one small, faithful, obedient decision at a time. Every fork you come to in the road, ask yourself this question. Verse 3. Here's the decision to be made. Here's the small bite to be taken. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility consider others better than yourselves or perhaps before yourselves is, gives a better sense of it. Consider others before yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others. I was reading a newspaper article recently that talked about marriage and strong relationships and it said often we imagine that we are the star of our own movie. You know, in a movie they follow a character around and things revolve around that person. And uh, The point was, if you want a good relationship, imagine that life has your spouse as the star of the movie. What would it look like? What would the movie look like if your spouse was the star of the movie? I thought that's a good way of thinking about it. Uh, We should come to a situation and imagine that the person we're speaking to or ministering to Imagine that they are the star of the movie. How would things play out if they are the centre of things? That's what Paul's getting at. Consider others before yourselves. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Look to the interests of others. Each step, each conversation, each action, each phone call, each event, ask yourself that question. Am I, am, and what I'm about to do or say or think, is that coming from selfishness? Is it coming because I'm the centre of my own movie, the star of my own movie? Is there conceit? 
Is there self-interest? Is there humility in what I'm doing or saying or thinking? Don't work to your agenda. Don't build your empire. Forget selfish ambition. Don't take a job or a ministry or a committee to be noticed or to have an influence. Humility is the key. Paul's given the command and now he gives us the example, the perfect training partner to achieve the goal. Just like my friend and I had Stuart to inspire and follow, uh, so Jesus gives, uh, so Paul gives us the ultimate instructor, Jesus. Verse 5 he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe Jesus' attitude, an attitude that showed itself but had hands and feet in action. He begins with his attitude in heaven. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Stu described it in his kids' talk, didn't he? God, the Son, equal to the Father in every respect, with every privilege, the ultimate position, the ultimate completion and happiness in his relationship with the Father, but he didn't cling on to any of it. He he didn't hold it selfishly. He was prepared to lay it all aside, to take off the royal robes, to put the crown on the shelf and to become one of us, limited, finite, vulnerable and frail. Selfless sacrifice to the extreme. That was Jesus' attitude. But that's only the beginning. That would be enough of an example to follow. When he became a man, he went even further, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself further and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You thought God, eternal, becoming finite, was low. But Jesus went even further. As a man, he was arrested and mocked and whipped. He suffered one of the most painful deaths ever invented. He endured the shame and ridicule. That was extreme sacrifice and slavery. That is the attitude that we're to have, says Paul. Have that attitude in the way you relate to each other. And so because Jesus had that attitude... The Father gave it all back to him. He restored with interest all he had. Verse 9, Paul continues, Therefore, because Jesus was obedient, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So not only is Jesus the example we're to follow, he's the king we're to bow before. He's the Lord to serve. But why are we to do that? Why are we to follow Jesus? There are plenty of good moral examples for us to follow. You could probably name a few of people in your sphere of relationships. We could think of historical figures, Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or Mahatma Gandhi, all sorts of people that you could model your behaviour on. 
but no one who deserves or demands our obedience and our loyalty, who deserves our imitation. You see, Jesus is the only one who has beaten death, the only one exalted to the Father's right hand, who has earned our respect and our obedience and our allegiance. Notice how verse 12 follows on from verse 11. Uh, Verse 11 says, At the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Follow Jesus' example, not just because it's a good example to follow, but because he has won our allegiance. He deserves it. He is on the throne and not us. Therefore, bow before him because God has exalted him. Keep obeying. Keep building the unity that we have through humbly submitting to one another. Keep serving him as Lord. Keep doing that right to the end. That's Paul's message. Well, you might think, well, that's fine. Uh, But surely that's an impossible goal, isn't it? Isn't imitating Jesus something that we're never going to be able to measure up to? Or maybe you're thinking, well, I've been trying for years and I'm not sure I'm ever going to make it. I don't seem to be making much progress. It seems to be all a bit pointless. Well, if you're struggling and uh, and if your eyes are on Jesus, I'm confident that you will continue that you will keep working it out to the end. Where does my confidence come from? Is it your own brilliance or reliability or godliness? Is it your excellent work ethic or your never-say-die attitude? No, it's none of those things. Maybe it's the support of your church family that makes me so confident. Or maybe it's the excellent preaching you hear every week. No, All of those things might be some use, but they're not where my confidence comes from that you will persevere. It's got very little to do with those things and everything to do with God. Because as Paul goes on to say, it's not just you who is working it out to the end. It is God working in you, accomplishing his plans. And he never runs out of strength or patience or enthusiasm. So verse 13, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We are to work but God finishes what he starts by energising and empowering us as we do it. He doesn't do it instead of us. He works in us through his spirit. I can't really explain it any more than that. It's a bit hard to try and work out how the two of them work together, but we're to work hard and God's spirit works through us. Uh, He doesn't just, uh, he's at work in our will. He gives us the desire to live like Jesus and he's at work in our actions as well, empowering us to do it. His spirit gives us the strength to persevere when we're discouraged. His spirit takes away our desire for the things we used to desire 
His spirit replaces them with a joy that we've never known before. His spirit takes away our filthy rags of anger and bitterness and selfishness. His spirit gradually replaces them with fruit of love and joy and patience and kindness. God works in us, God works with us to achieve beautiful music as we keep working hard with our eyes fixed on Jesus. I read a story about a mum who took her young son to a piano concert by the famous 20th century Polish pianist Ignacy Paderewski. Apparently he's famous, I've never heard of him. Uh, But the son was just learning and mum wanted to inspire him. Before the concert, mum was distracted, went to speak to somebody else. The little boy took the opportunity to explore and he eventually explored his way right through a door marked no admittance. The house lights dimmed, mum made her way back to the seat, discovered her son was missing, the curtains parted, the spotlight focused on the impressive Steinway grand piano with a little boy sitting at the stool. Uh, And as the lights dimmed, he began picking out Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on the Steinway Grand. The audience gasped in horror. Well, at that moment, the concert pianist made his entrance, moved to the piano and rather than shooing the boy away, he sat down next to the boy and whispered in his ear, don't quit, keep playing. The boy continued to play. Paderewski began filling in a bass part with the left hand and soon his right hand reached around the other side of the child and added a counter melody, a harmony above the tune. And as the audience listened enwrapped, the old master and the young novice breathed new life into a simple tune. They turned what could have been uncomfortable into a wonderfully creative experience. The audience was mesmerised. It's a little like that with God. What we can accomplish may not seem like much. We try our best but the results aren't very often graceful flowing music. But God has promised that his hand, working through his spirit, is working in us and through us. And so next time you start to wonder whether you have the patience or the enthusiasm or the gifts to see it through to the end, listen carefully through passages like this. You may hear or you will hear the voice of the Master whispering in your ear, don't quit, keep playing. Don't quit, keep playing. Sometimes all we might hear are our own wrong notes, our stumbling, our hypocrisy, our fear, our laziness. But no matter how hard you try, nothing seems to sound any good. You're not making progress. You can't see God doing anything. But that doesn't mean he's not there, quietly playing along, playing out a harmony to what you're doing, God's power is at work in you, his purposes are being served, his glory is being seen. The rest of the chapter goes on to give us some concrete examples in the Philippians and in a couple of Paul's companions about how they are living out that humility and service. For example, verse 15, he describes the Philippians and says, So that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation 
in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. What a great image that is for us. Shining stars. Uh, Maybe that could be us in 2018. Asheville Presbyterian, shining like stars, holding out the word of life. Well, it's got to begin with us humbly putting each other first, uh, working together in unity, following the example of the Lord Jesus, serving him as king, uh, working out his salvation, working out our salvation right to the end. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus. More than that, we, we, we thank you for his, uh, his work, his death and resurrection that brings us into fellowship with you. We thank you for your work in uh, making us your children. We thank you for the work of your spirit in our lives, uh, enabling us, empowering us, working in us, uh, so that we might work our salvation out to the end. We pray that as a church you would be at work in us. Help us to be united, help us to be humble, help us to put each other first so that we may all make it to the end. Help us to shine like stars in a dark world as we hold out the word of life to that, to that dark world. And We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.